Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 37, The Lost Prophecy. Harry's feet hit solid ground again. His knees buckled a little, and the golden wizard's head fell with a resounding clunk to the floor. He looked around and saw that he had arrived in Dumbledore's office. Everything seemed to have repaired itself during the head. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So friends, one big announcement this week, which is that Women of Harry Potter has, like, graduated from a training podcast to its own podcast, which means that it is no longer going to be in our feed. So you are going to have to go subscribe to the Women of Harry Potter feed. There will be two episodes a month of the Women of Harry Potter in this new feed and one bonus episode on Patreon. We are so excited for our first baby spinoff podcast. It's a moment. It's a Casper free zone. (laughs) It's a dangerous thing. We should invite you over. 
Bellatrix, I'm coming for you. <laughs> Umbridge! <laughs> Vanessa, this week's theme is patience. And as soon as I started thinking about that theme, I went right back to Mr. Gowers' music room. Growing up, all four of us siblings had an instrument that we started off, and I started off with violin. I was not good at violin. I hid under the trampoline to avoid going to violin lessons. And so I graduated onto the clarinet because... I was told that my lungs were too small to play the saxophone, which I realize now was a very sneaky way for my parents to avoid saxophone music. But I believe them. And so I just had to get started with my clarinet. And who was teaching me clarinet? It was Mr. Gowers. And we were preparing for a concert, you know, like people who are starting out with an instrument, chance to perform. And I was going to play green sleeves, but it was really hard and I didn't like practicing. So maybe this was my fifth or sixth lesson or something, and I hadn't really practiced that week. And I came in and I played what could have sounded something <laughs> like green sleeves. And Mr. Gowers just looked at me and said, you haven't practiced I'm leaving this room and you're going to use this as your practice time. You're wasting my time or something like that. And as soon as the door closed behind him, I just bawled my little eyes out. Could you sustain that with your small lungs? <laughs> <laughs> I was just so, so upsetting. And I wasn't even angry at Mr. Gowers because he was right. I hadn't practiced at all. I was angry at myself for not having the patience to stick with something that I wasn't good at, which I think is all a musical instrument can teach you if you're not particularly talented like I wasn't. And that's something I still struggle with today. I hate doing something new, especially in front of other people, if I'm not good at it. I just get so queasy about it. And so patience is a virtue that I like to turn into a non-virtue. I like to say like, oh, yeah, impatience is good if you want to make change and things like that. But really, I'm just really bad at patience. So I'm looking forward to see what I can learn from the characters in this chapter this week. Casper, I also am not known for my patience. It's why we get along, to be honest. I think so, too. We're like, well, we have an idea for a podcast. Let's make one. Done. Okay. Well, let's test each other's patience with a little 30-second recap. Yeah. The reason that we do a 30-second recap is because anything longer, we're like, <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, 30 seconds on the clock. What's the recap of chapter 37 starting now? Part of me wants to be like, the recap of this chapter is five seconds. It's Dumbledore and Harry talk. But other <laughs> things happen. Phineas Nigellus is like, oh my God, my uh, my nephew is dead and like goes to his other portrait. Harry, Dumbledore locks Harry into the office at one point. And Dumbledore is like, does a lot of like explaining, explaining of like, when you were 11, I didn't want to tell you because of this reason. When you were 12, I didn't want to tell you because of this reason. We find out that Trelawney is the one that made the prediction. We find out that Dumbledore didn't really want to hire Trelawney, but then she had this like prophecy moment. And uh, Harry's sad. Yeah. Sometimes you hire the wrong person and then you can't get rid of them. <laughs> Sometimes you hire... The wrong person for a good reason, though. That's what Dumbledore does here. That's true. Okay, Casper, try to beat that. Great. Let me have a go. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so Dumbledore's basically being like, um, I'm so sorry. I have feelings for you. And it made me do things that I shouldn't have done. Um, and Harry's like, um, can we just like wrap this up? Because I'm in grief and shock right now. And I haven't yet had some chocolate. Um, and we learn all this stuff that in one can't die while the other survives. And so Harry's like, oh my goodness, it's going to be me. But also, couldn't it be Neville? And we spend a lot of time thinking that really it should be Neville. Because Harry is kind of done with everything. And then that's the end. 
Good job. Right. Everyone go vote for Casper. (laughs) So, Vanessa, as we dig into this chapter, thinking of my story with my clarinet, I couldn't help but notice that there's a real parallel here with Harry not practicing occlumency. And what's interesting is that Harry, like me, ends up feeling really ashamed, right? In this moment, once he has hindsight, he thinks like, oh my goodness, if I had practiced, if I had done what I had been asked to do, maybe Sirius wouldn't have died. And and he's starting to see how he is responsible by not practicing his musical instrument. Yeah, and what strikes me both about the clarinet and about occlumency is that nobody has given you a purpose. I think that I am much more capable of having patience when I know why I have to have it, right? Like a long flight, you're like, okay, like there's an ocean to get over. And when I get over the ocean, I will get to see X, Y, and Z. But as a kid, it's like if you are privileged and lucky enough to get to practice an instrument, you just get told to do it. And for this like vague, like it'll help you get into college. I like who knows? Yeah. Mike Ocean was like, when you're 16, you can stop. And that was very, very far away when I was like 12. Right. And I think it was the same with occlumency. I think that if it had been explicitly told to Harry, Voldemort is going to continue to try to infiltrate your brain. And we are scared that you will hurt people. Right. And which is a lot of the meaning making that Dumbledore is doing here. Absolutely. But I think he's right. I think that Harry would have been able to suck it up with his time of Snape and would have had more patience if it was clear as to what he was doing. This is so resonant for me. Have I ever told you the story of how I stopped playing the clarinet? No, I didn't even know you'd played the clarinet, and it's so endearing. (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. Exactly what happened is what you just said, in that once I realized, oh, my parents want me to have a hobby. This was maybe when I was 14 or 15. I wrote my parents a letter, and like I brought it downstairs, and what it said (laughs) was... Clarinet is not my hobby. People are my hobby. (laughs) And my parents are like, okay. Clarinet is your hobby. (laughs) But it was a moment when I realized like, oh, there's a bigger purpose than me being able to play green sleeves in front of 20 people in the salon of the school. (laughs) It's actually about me having an interest in cultivating a discipline and creating art in some way in the world. And that made sense to me. And then I was able to recognize, oh, actually, no, my gift is something else. It is not this. And I feel like Harry could be like, guys, I know you want to use me for a killing machine and that maybe I'm the secret (laughs) weapon. But what I'm really good at is flying on a broom. (laughs) And we just focus on that. I mean, I know you're kidding, but like, I think it's hard with a very small kid to appeal to them and their like sense of future and discipline about like why they need to stick it out at the piano. But I think Harry is mature enough that I think Dumbledore is right in his regrets here that he's putting a ton of responsibility on himself. But also, he takes a lot of agency and makes a lot of decisions without consulting a lot of people. And I think he's right. Like, this was a missed opportunity. I think Harry would have studied. I agree. And I think, actually, to turn to patience, Dumbledore was too patient. You know, he he keeps illustrating all of these moments when he could have shared more information. And we look back at those moments and think, gosh, when Harry left that room, he was feeling informed and understanding. And Dumbledore left every room being like, oh, there's more to say and I haven't. And I think because he's gotten into that pattern, right, after year one, where there could have been that first moment, every time there's an opportunity like that, it just layers on more ingrained 
non-action yeah. that he tells himself is about respect and is about patience. But I mean, if Harry is able to handle these situations as he is, fighting Voldemort numerous times, orchestrating this wild escape with Hermione's brains, he is going to be able to handle this information as he does now. Yeah. I mean, the way that I was curious about Dumbledore doing that, I was like, okay, what's the difference between patience and avoidance? Mm. I think that we can put a positive spin on, I'm just waiting for the right time to break up with this person and I'm being patient. It was just their birthday and then it's Valentine's Day and now it's March and everyone gets sad in March because winter's not over. Which is true. Right? Like, and those are all true, but like, what's the difference between patience and like actually just avoiding an awkward conversation? The funny thing to me is that Dumbledore in this moment sort of believes in the conceit of the book, which is that you can only have these reveal conversations <laughs> after, like, a tough moment with Voldemort. I can't believe I didn't see that. He's like, the only times we could have a conversation like this is right after an enormous trauma during your exams. Right. And, like, go visit him on Privet Drive in the middle of the summer and be like, it's been a month. How are you doing about the Cedric death? BTW, have some things I need to tell you. But also, like, have Lupin there. Have Sirius there. Like, Vanessa, you're a genius. Yes. But I think that we all do that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I know I do that. We build up these false walls around, like, I'll want to talk to my parents about finances. And I'm like, well, it has to wait till I'm home in Los Angeles. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Like, just because in the past those conversations have happened in L.A., part of the reason that they're always these really big conversations is because I save it all up until I'm in L.A., whereas I talk to my parents almost every day. We could have a million small conversations about it, right? And so even though it's the narrative structure of the books, it's actually about this other thing, which is we all create these weird boundaries. And I think patience and choosing your moment wisely is wonderful. And I also just think we can hide behind that. So here's the interesting thing. In the text, we actually get to read the word patience. I, When I saw it, I was like, this will make Casper so happy. It just is so satisfying. And it, it comes from Dumbledore, who literally says, I only ask for a little patience. And this is right after Harry's been like, I don't want to talk about it. Get me out of here. He tries to leave. And, and literally, the door is locked. Dumbledore will not let him leave. And so Dumbledore says, you know, I'll explain, but I only ask for a little patience. And it's so ironic to me that actually Dumbledore is asking Harry for the thing that Dumbledore has had too much of. And again, it just speaks to your point of of layering on all of this extra intense emotional work in a, in a moment of real distress. And it's such distress that Dumbledore has to literally lock Harry in. Yeah. Dumbledore institutionalizes this forced patience. I guess I'm wondering, if you are forcing someone else to be patient, is it actually patience? Well, so this is a really good question because patience is often about someone else changing, right? Like learning how to play clarinet is patience with myself and like being really bad at something until you get okay at it and then hopefully you get a little better. But sometimes patience is about you know, allowing someone else to move at their own pace, to just watch and hold still as they have the experiences or, you know, just the things that happen to them in their own time without you imposing your timeline or your desires on on their growth and development. And I think by and large, Dumbledore is actually pretty good at that. Like he doesn't impose this information or, or much else, frankly, on Harry and really lets the trio kind of have their own adventures and gives little nudges here and there by giving them a time turner, etc. But they really are the agents of their own experience. Yes, but 
I'm not sure that he's doing that because he's withholding information. So Harry could discover his own path entirely and then Dumbledore could be like, psych, actually this whole other thing's happening. I feel like Dumbledore like knows Harry has cancer Mm. and is like, I don't want you to be burdened with this knowledge. And Harry's like, but if I would have known, I would have acted differently. I mean, these are like really fine balances and we have to forgive each other for the mistakes that we make in patience. I also think, you know, like, I think that this is true in every situation of patients, right? Like, if your child isn't walking around 14 months by the time all other children are walking, part of you wants to be patient and be like, my kids will really happy crawling and, like, good for them that they're a chill baby. And they're going to fly within three months, so chill. Yeah, exactly. But then the other part of you is like, well, at what point are they delayed and I should get, like, a specialist involved? And these are live questions in our life. Or you're sitting with your child while they're doing homework and you're like, how long do I let them struggle before I I give them some instruction? Like, how much am I teaching them about discipline or how much am I just, like, letting them frustrate themselves? So these, I think, are really delicate balances. And I just think that Dumbledore at some point should have done an intentions check on himself. Mm -hmm. And I think he would have found out earlier that his intentions were about avoidance. They were not about Harry. He just didn't want to do the dirty work that he himself had started. And again, like, I forgive Dumbledore for that, for, like, loving Harry more than he anticipated loving him and wanting to just, like, watch him be a child for another minute. And, like, I think that those are beautiful instincts, but it has really dire consequences. The other thing that I'm suddenly thinking about is how... You know, often kind of in in activism and social change work, there's a real sense of urgency and an immediate need for something to happen, which is obviously true. And when you speak to kind of elders or people who've been in that work for a long time, they often have a much longer view, a a sense that justice and change happens over decades. You know, it doesn't happen in a moment. And I'm suddenly seeing the way in which, you know, the battle between Harry and Voldemort is one that goes back generations, certainly to his parents and obviously the Order of the Phoenix. But to some extent, the good and evil battle is as old as time. And I wonder if Dumbledore might have had a chance to tell more stories and not just Dumbledore, but the rest of the Order, at least to tell more stories about how it was before to help Harry feel like even though this information is going to implicate him personally in a really intense way, that somehow having this longer span of time would give him more patience with himself as he struggles with things like occlumency, knowing that maybe Lupin really struggled with becoming a werewolf or, or other things. I I really love this idea that, you know, social change is it's not a sprint, but it's not even a marathon. It's a relay race, right? Like that we hand it from one generation to another. And Dumbledore talks about that, right? He says older people forget what it's like to be young. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Like at our peril, he's like, I forgot what it was like to be young. And because of that, I withheld information that I shouldn't have. Casper, I want to take us back to the very beginning of the chapter, because Mm. to me, it was just such a perfect embodiment of resented patience. So Harry is like going out of his mind with grief, right? The text says he couldn't bear to think about it any longer. And he's just trapped in Dumbledore's office and Dumbledore isn't even there. They're like not talking about it. And he has nothing to do, right? Like there's just nothing he can do but be in this room. And that made me think of the moments in which 
Time is going to take its time regardless of whether or not you are calm about it. And I don't know if that is forced patience or if that's something else, if that's like a container of time in which you can still only be experiencing impatience. But I'm just thinking about like the times you spend in a waiting room while somebody you love is having surgery, the time that you're waiting to hear back from a job, right? There are these periods of time in which there's nothing that you can do but wait. Is that the same thing as patience? Oh, that's such a good question, because it really struck me that Harry's response is, you know, he starts throwing things around. He he starts kind of breaking stuff. And I feel like this happens to me all the time when I'm on hold, for example, and I'm waiting to speak to a customer service agent or I'm in line for something and it's taking forever. And I will notice if I have enough energy, I'll notice a choice that I have, which is like, Either I'm going to resent this and I'm going to be stewing and I'm going to be angry, which frankly happens pretty often. Oh, yeah. And that's what's happening to Harry. But there are other times when maybe I had a good sleep the night before. I'm able to be like, okay, we're going to be here for as long as it takes. Let me think about nice thoughts or let me look at everyone and try to find something nice about what they're wearing. There are moments when I'm not imprisoned by that time. And actually, I feel like I can be patient, but I I don't think it happens automatically. I, I think you can be impatient for a long time while you're waiting. Right. So waiting and patience isn't the same thing. Right. I think so. There have just been moments in my life, specifically when my dad was sick the second time and we were old enough to know that he was like in brain surgery, Mm. but brain surgery is long. I guess I remember thinking there's nothing I can do about this time. Mm. And like a peace came over me that was almost like surrender. And I know that that amount of time can also create complete impatience because there have been times specifically on airplanes where I've been in pain and just continue to make myself more and more anxious and more and more agitated, being like, I need to be on the ground. Uh, Yeah, I'm wondering what you make about these like containers of time. Is patience just about surrendering to the unknown or? I love that. I love that you're connecting patience to surrender because that's what it feels like to me. It's like you're letting go of control, right? Patience means that even if the action is on you, like practicing your clarinet, you are still not in control of how good you are at playing the clarinet. You have to surrender. And so i that's what I'm going to ask myself next time I'm in a long line is like, am I okay to surrender? Because choosing to be patient feels somehow abstract and asking myself, like, can I surrender to not being in charge right now? Yes or no? That feels like a question I can answer. Little kids are the best way for me to be called to surrender to patience. There's something about kids that can make me Mm. feel inspired to surrender. Mm. I'm like, let's just do this. But again, I think this gets back to the first point we made, and it's that it feels purposeful. Mm. It's that every moment with a child, to me, I'm like, well, I'm like teaching them that love is sitting next to someone. I'm sitting with them as like folds get put on their frontal lobe. And I'm like able to surrender because I understand what the purpose is. And also one day they will look after me as I age and die. (laughs) I don't explicitly think that, but I should start to. I'll be a better auntie if I do. So here's my question then, Vanessa, which is my sister is so freaking good at that. And I am not. Like she is. Yeah. My sister, Laura, is so patient. Like, she's so great with kids, first of all, but also just tasks that take care and attention and attention to detail specifically, for which I frankly just get 
I get really agitated and frustrated much more quickly. And so I feel like, yes, purpose is part of it, but there's also something just about our natural inclination, maybe. Like, is this a house thing? I mean, people who are patient are better people than we are. (laughs) That's basically the conclusion. I mean, I think it's like about a surrender of ego, right? And Mm. so you believe that what the thing that you're working on is more important than you and your sense of accomplishment. I just think that patience is wise and not ego-driven, and you and I are immature, vapid children. (laughs) (laughs) Sign up to our podcast. (laughs) And I also think that I miss out on a lot because I'm not patient, which is part of why I want to work on it. Like, I bet that Laura, for example, really appreciates, like, looking at embroidery or, like, appreciates craftsmanship or, like, notices flowers more. Or I've started taking more of an interest in plants. And since I have, this has been the most rewarding spring that I've ever experienced. Mm. I've just, like, realized, I'm like, oh, all these flowers that I get to enjoy, people have landscaped them and people have planted them, like, years in advance in order for them to be this big and flowering this much. Mm. And I've never enjoyed spring spring more. I just think that patience is often rewarded. And so Laura wins. <laughs> well, and people who are patient, I think sometimes look at people like you and me saying, gosh, maybe I should be more impatient, you know, because it moves things faster or sometimes, you know, other things are possible when you when you don't allow things to happen at their own pace. So I I will trust that our listeners, wherever they fall on that spectrum of patience or impatience, can understand the value of the opposite side, which to me just says this is why we need each other, because you need that balance of patience and impatience and to have the choicefulness between the two. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much. And Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... You can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Casper, here's my question. Is it immoral that Dumbledore locks Harry in this office? What do you think? I am so torn about it, is how I actually feel. He has literally created a safe space for Harry to feel these feelings. He's like, do you want to throw and break stuff? Break stuff. Right. I think I have too much stuff anyway. And we see that his stuff fixes itself (laughs) because when we came in, all the stuff that was broken before is fixed. So, like, Harry's not going to be any injury. Dumbledore is going to love him. And sometimes I think you need to put someone in a padded room so they won't hurt themselves and so they won't hurt other people while they are in pain. And I think that's exactly what's happening. I mean, Harry is overwhelmed with emotion. Obviously, we're in all caps Harry mode. He's saying things like, I've had enough. I mean, I'm worried for Harry's safety of what he would do to himself in this moment. He is feeling so responsible. He's feeling like he's the architect of Sirius's death. No one understands Like, I can imagine Harry doing something that he might really regret later. And that certainly, as someone who is responsible for Harry's well-being, as Dumbledore is in this moment, I think he has a responsibility to stay with Harry. And what I really, really love throughout this chapter is that Dumbledore is taking responsibility. He's saying, it's my fault that Sirius died. I made a mistake. And so even if Harry feels like logically that's not true, at least he's hearing someone else express love and care for Sirius, take seriously Harry's pain and suffering, but then also take responsibility for it, which which at least in some way I hope would help Harry feel not completely responsible. I think it's justified. I think he's doing the right thing. Yeah, I can imagine doing it in exactly the way that you describe it, right? I can imagine sort of locking a student in a room until I can get them a mental health professional because they have expressed a desire to hurt themselves or hurt someone else, right? I can imagine standing in a doorway in certain circumstances. Yeah, I guess you've convinced me that it is one of those circumstances. I think the other way to read it is that he's locked Harry into this room to confess and is Mm. making Harry his priest. That it's serving Dumbledore's needs to kind of unburden himself rather than Harry's needs. Yeah, Mm. but I'm compelled by your read. I think the difference for me would be is if Dumbledore had locked Harry into a room without Dumbledore also being there. If it had been a kind of confinement in a way that felt imprisoning rather than accompanying. No, because I feel like... If someone just broke up with me and I'm mad and I have so many feelings and they don't want to hear them and I lock them in and so that they have to hear all my feelings, <laughs> right? Like that that's wrong. That's kidnapping. Right, right. Like that is holding someone against their wishes. It's about whose needs are being served. Exactly. And, and if the person being locked up against their will is the person being served, then I think it's fine. And if the person being locked up against their will is not the one being served, then I think it's imprisonment and unethical. And I think Dumbledore 
is potentially doing a sleight of hand of pretending that he's being served by this moment of like, I am unburdening myself when really what he's doing at every single turn is taking care of Harry. Mm. I just hope that he's really thinking that through before he locks Harry up. And this choice is never easy. I mean, we know people who have been forcibly taken into a mental hospital, for example. And, you know, in that moment, God willing, you're doing it because this person really needs urgent treatment and and you are no longer able to support them and they need professional care. You know, that can also do real damage and really scare someone. And so I think there's also this question of, you know, is it for their well-being in this very moment? And also the kind of longer term cost-benefit analysis that you have to do in those split seconds, which are which are just very, very difficult to do. So I, I don't want to make light of, of how challenging that decision can be when you're making it on behalf of someone else. Yeah, and I just see, I guess the reason that I brought it up in terms of patience is that Dumbledore seems so calm in the face of Harry trying to bust out. Right. And it seems as though Dumbledore is actually requiring, physically requiring patience from Harry. Hmm. He's like, you don't want to hear this, but you have no way out. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about this now, my mom did this to us as children. I came down the stairs one morning and I started teasing my brother David, who was sitting on the couch looking miserable. And I was like, what's wrong with you? And he put his hand up and he went, don't start. Mom already took me on a car ride. And even though we had not like named it that, In that moment, I knew exactly what he meant, which is my mom would be like, come pick up bagels with me. Come to the dry cleaner with me. And it was her locking you in a car to have a serious conversation with you. And you can't do it like you can't roll out of the car. And so my mom would do this all the time. She would pull a Dumbledore and force lock us in a car to have an awkward conversation with us. That's what I'm going to call it from now on doing a Dumbledore. (laughs) (laughs) We still call it a car ride. Because sometimes mom mom will do a car ride on you, not physically in a car. You know, you'll be in a bathroom corridor and she'll corner you and you're like, is this a car ride? So, Vanessa, this week we are doing Lectio, and I'm really excited because this is truly my favorite spiritual practice. And here is the sentence where my finger landed. Did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? Ooh. So let's think of stage one, which is just to think narratively. What's happening in the story as we encounter this sentence? Did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? Yeah, so Dumbledore is in the middle of his, like, expository monologue, and he is explaining to Harry why he put Harry with the Dursleys. And in part, this is a rhetorical question in which he says, no, I I did not think that Voldemort was gone forever, and so I thought you still needed protection. Ten points for Hufflepuff. That's exactly right. Thank you. So let's think then to the next allegorical level, which is to start thinking about stories or images or songs or just anything that we're reminded of by the words in this sentence. Did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? So generally, my first thought was Cher's amazing 1998 hit, Believe. (laughs) Do you believe in life after love? And I always get the words wrong because I think it's love after life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is a very different song. <laughs> it's a very different song. But in some way relates to, to Voldemort. I hadn't thought about this, but like, is there life after love? Voldemort is desperately seeking life and has lost all love. 
Can we talk about why you knew what year the song Believe by Cher came out? Oh, my God. This is a really indicative moment of my life. I was in middle school, and Adam Braverman was a friend. And we would go to his house because I could watch Friends at his house. And it was a really exciting time because Adam was also quite handsome. And I didn't fully understand what that meant to me at the time. But I think it was New Year's Eve at his house. And like my family did New Year's Eve by like playing board games and throwing molten lead in water and seeing what shape it was. Like we didn't have loud music and that kind of thing. So Adam's house was very exciting. (laughs) What other images or, or stories or songs does this connect for you to? Did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? The word believe also is what struck me. and. It speaks to me that, like, Dumbledore thought that, like, the evidence was clear that Voldemort was not gone forever Mm. and that everybody's celebration was actually about faith and desire and not about truth. Mm. And that he probably could have spoken out all those years ago and been like, Voldemort is not gone. But he sort of thought that people needed their faith and that it was better to hope that they were right while secretly believing that they weren't. What's so interesting is I'm now seeing parallels between Fudge and Dumbledore in Mm. the sense that, you know, Fudge has been unwilling to believe that Voldemort's returned, but Dumbledore kind of didn't want to tell people the truth either, or perhaps, if we're generous, didn't think people would believe him and so thought he'd be, you know, laughed out of the classroom. But And I think, again, we, like, see Dumbledore's biggest fault is that he doesn't let more people in, right? Yes. Because he knew. He knew. He didn't just not believe it. Okay, so then step three is to think about our own experience. What does this sentence remind you of in your own life? Did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? What it reminds me of in my own life are the mistakes that I've made that I forget about because what's so clear here is that Dumbledore is holding his own feet to the fire and is holding account for himself. And I feel like I make mistakes and maybe because I'm impatient, as we've talked about, I make them so quickly that like there's never this moment of like reflection where I'm like, oh, did I make that mistake? And so I guess it's just making me feel again the like virtue of patience and slowness. It's so interesting. My my mind went to memory as well. And and the fact that sometimes people tell you stories about yourself and I will simply not remember that that even happened. And it's maybe this is the experience of getting older. It's just like you forget more, right, about your own life. And so if this was like, did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? <laughs> like, what did I actually believe in when I was 17? You know, I'm having this moment now where there really is an, a generation below me that's like the next wave of young climate activists. And they are doing amazing things around the Sunrise Movement and the Green New Deal. And I look at them and I'm like... Did I believe the things that they believed? Like, I actually cannot remember. You know, did I think that I was a piece of the puzzle? Did I think that, you know, what we were doing was exactly right? I genuinely have forgotten. So I'm I'm just struck that perhaps Dumbledore is saying, like, did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? And then he's like, oh, yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to your mid-30s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a happy place to be. I just forget about all the things that I did wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so then the final question is to think about what the text might be asking of us. What can we learn? What action can we take that is inspired by this snippet of text? I'll read it once more. Did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? 
Oh, this is interesting. I have always really struggled, and I don't read the Bible at all, but that phrase that the poor will always be with you, that, that comes from the Christian New Testament. And in some ways, it's resonating with me as, as an action to remember, which is like, whatever we do as humans and whatever we try and change, like there will still, to some extent, be evil in the world, in part because there's evil in us. And now that's a big theological statement to make. But I, I like that idea that it, not that it lets any of us off the hook, but to be a little forgiving of ourselves if things don't work out perfectly or we aren't able to do everything that we had hoped to do because Voldemort is going to be around. I don't know. There's something, I guess that's the action I want to take is to just keep reminding myself that, you know, we're never going to build the perfect world. What about you, Vanessa? I guess I, I feel called to forgive myself. I look back on moments in which I was naive with such shame mm. where I'm like, I at one point believed that Voldemort was gone. Like mm. that is something that would cause a tremendous amount of shame in me to remember. And so I just don't think about those things. But I think the thing to do is to remember them and forgive myself. Mm. Thanks, Vanessa. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Kaylina Mills. Hey guys, my name is Kaylina. I was just listening to one of your episodes and it struck me that you pronounce Voldemort's name as Voldemort. Um, I know this is how J.K. Rowling intended the name to be pronounced, but it's not very common in the Harry Potter fandom. So when I noticed your pronunciation, um, I started thinking about the origin of that name. 
and it translates to walk from death, and we know this is the defining character trait of Voldemort. You know, he continually runs from death. But what was even more striking to me was that this is the exact opposite of how Harry stays alive at the end of book seven. In order to keep living, he actively walks to death. He walks into the Forbidden Forest to die. And, in fact, this is how he survives all of his battles against Voldemort in books one, two, four, five, and seven. Even in book four, you know, he didn't exactly walk to death. He didn't intend to end up in the graveyard. But he has a moment where he's hiding behind a gravestone and he debates whether to run for the cup and try and escape. And he decides in the end to turn around and walk to Voldemort and face him directly. So I've just been thinking about how in each of Harry's battles with Voldemort, he wins by walking actively towards death rather than from death. Um, He's very consistently the opposite of Voldemort in this way. And so the message that I'm taking away from this reflection is that the only way to get what I want in life and to be who I want to be is to walk towards the things that scare me. So I want to offer a blessing for Harry for showing me that I can only step into my truth and self-actualize by pushing myself into uncomfortable and maybe scary situations. And I want to offer a blessing for all the people that do that in the world, like the Black Lives Matter activists who stare down barrels of guns at rallies, like the teachers across the country who are striking at risk of losing their job. Like Brie Newsome, who climbed the flagpole in South Carolina to tear down the Confederate flag. All of these people walked boldly into spaces in which they're incredibly vulnerable. And I want to bless all the people who do that. I want to be more like that. You all inspire me. So, Kylina, I really appreciate the place that you come to, but I actually want to push back on you about your premise, which is you say at the beginning of your voicemail that Harry, in order to keep living, walks toward death. And I really disagree with that characterization. Harry walks toward death in order to die for his friends, in order to save people. He does not do it in order to live. He happens to live. But that is very different. He's not doing it strategically to live. He is willing to die. And Black Lives Matter's activists know that they can die, that they can get arrested. What matters to me is that we have to know the risks to know whether or not they're worth taking. Harry decides that it's worth taking the risk of dying or walking, he thinks, to his certain death because he's going to be able to save everyone. But if we think that walking toward the things that scare us is just a virtue in and of itself without taking stock of all the risks we're going to take, I think that that can lead to recklessness. Mm. The other thing, Kaylina, that I'm thinking about that is just a helpful tool that I think about when when you're making a big decision is to is to kind of think about, is this decision being motivated by fear or by love. Now, that's a very simplistic binary that never quite encapsulates the fullness of the motivations for a decision. But, you know, in in a moment like Harry walking into the forest, I mean, that is such a love-motivated decision, right? Of course he's afraid, but 
this sense of love for the people, his friends and his, his, you know, even his parents, even though they're not there physically, that love is the overpowering motivation. And so I really resonate with how you're thinking about those kind of big decisions. So Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you blessing this week? I would like to offer a blessing for Petunia. Mm. We know how horrible she is. And Dumbledore, you know, makes space for that by saying, like, you arrived to us alive, not as well cared for or as nourished as we would like, right? Like, Petunia malnourishes Harry. But she takes him. And Dumbledore really makes clear to us that that was a choice that she made. And I obviously believe if you're going to be hospitable to someone, you be completely hospitable to them. You don't say, you can stay here, but I'm going to be awful to you. But she takes in a child at risk to herself. And it seems to me as though she did it in large part because Dumbledore said, this child will have the protection of your blood if you take him in. And even when she is confronted with the harsh realities that her biological son could get kissed by a dementor, she keeps her promise. And that just seems to be a promise of real integrity. I don't know why. I feel like on some level I always assumed that there was some sort of threat involved from Dumbledore. But it doesn't seem that way. It seems as though there was like a, if you do this, this child will be protected. Mm. And she's not gracious about it, but she does it. My blessing is for Harry this week. And uh, I mean, we've talked about him a lot this episode and, and the challenges that he has in his moment of overwhelm. And that's really what I want to bless him for is that he is unable to even put words to what he's feeling half the time. And when it when there are words, it's shouting and it's all caps Harry. And I guess to anyone who's feeling overwhelmed and trapped and even if everyone's explanations make sense and their intentions are good, it doesn't feel good. And that's okay. And so I hope you have a headmaster's office that you can trash without doing too much damage because it'll be mended back together again. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can join our Facebook group, the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text Common Room, with other listeners to chat about the episode. Or come and join the 1,200-plus people supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you at one of our live shows in New York City on September 9th and in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. And in St. Louis, Missouri on December 19th. Next week, we'll have our live show from Indianapolis with John Green, reading Chapter 38, the last chapter of the book, The Second War Begins, through the theme of love. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Ursin. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. And we are part of Night Vale Presents. Thanks to Kylina Mills for her voicemail, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Casper, a piece of trivia for you about green sleeves. Oh. Do you know that it's reported that Henry VIII wrote Greensleeves? Yes, but that's a factual error. Correct. But I thought it would be strange if I had said to you, Casper, did you know that Henry VIII didn't write Greensleeves? So I was telling you, apparently people think that he did, but he didn't. Anyway, a little bit of trivia for our audience. But do you know what else Henry VIII didn't do? 30-second recaps? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he just did six wives. <laughs> Great.
slips all alone in the basement. Oh no, that's memory. <laughs> Little known fact: Henry VIII did not write green sleeves, but did write cats. It was undiscovered for years. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber is a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> 